0: Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank. Amazing show on tap this week. We're going to talk to Michael Schur. He is a TV writer who has created some of the best, funniest TV, including Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He got obsessed with researching philosophy when he was creating the TV show The Good Place, and he turned that obsession into his new book, the humbly titled How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral question. And then speaking of television, we're going to be talking to the hilarious comedian Demi Adigi Ebay about the joys of writing music, including the best parody of the Succession theme song out there. And then we're going to hear some non-parody music from the married folk duo Shovels and Rope. This is going to be a good one this week. I know I always say that, but I mean it a little bit extra this week. So stick around. It all gets started right after this. Hey there, Elena. Hey,
1: hey, Luke, how's it going?
0: It's going great. Better now that we are about to embark on another edition of LiveWire. First, though, are you ready to play a round of station location identification examination? I think so. <laughs> we have been getting into some very, let's just say, <laughs> <Yeah>. boutique <laughs> locations the last few weeks, so I don't want you to feel any sort of disappointment in yourself, because yeah. these have been some wonderful but not widely known places, yeah. and... um. Well, we'll see how this one goes. This city is located along the Palme de Terre River. The Potato River. (laughs) That's right. It translates literally into soil apple or potato in French. And uh, that's a bit of a hint because this place shares a name with a different city in Wisconsin. Think about that soil apple thing that I mentioned. Oh,
1: Appleton, Wisconsin?
0: Okay, but the other one? Which Appleton, would be Appleton, Minnesota. Yes! <laughs> exactly. Where we're on the radio on KNCM. Appleton, Minnesota. Way to go, Lenny. You've gotten the you've gotten the championship belt back. Should we get to the show? Wee wee wee. Take it away.
1: From PRX, it's LiveWire. This week, television writer and producer Michael Schur.
4: I think, generally speaking, dogma and children are, are a bad mix. It often doesn't go how you want it to go.
1: And comedian Demi Eve.
4: You can measure how bad a disaster is if
2: Waffle House shuts down because they open through everything. With
1: music from Shovels and Rope and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Yay!
0: Thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone tuning in from all over the country, including Appleton, Minnesota. Uh, we got a great show in store for you this week. It's our 500th episode. What? Time flies when you're making a public radio variety show. So here we are <laughs> at our 500th episode. We, of course, are celebrating that 500th episode by doing what we always do, asking the LiveWire listeners a question. Uh, We asked, what tiny unethical thing do you find yourself doing? This is because we've got Michael Schur on this week, the uh, creator of the TV show The Good Place, who's written this really incredible book about how to try to act at least somewhat morally in the world. So we thought we'd hear about the unethical things folks are doing, and we're going to get those answers coming up in just a bit. First, though, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This right here is our little reminder at the top of the show there is good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news that you heard this week?
1: Okay, we're going to stay in the upper Midwest for this one, going over to northern Michigan, where there is a precocious young feller named Clark Todebush. And this, this is really getting me. He's five years old, which means that, over a quarter of his life has been spent in pandemic times. And he's an only child, which very much concerned his mother, Gwyneth. And so as lockdown has been happening and as she's been trying to get him ready to be socialized and start kindergarten at age five, she's been really working with him on like coping skills and, you know, how to make the best out of your day and how to work through whatever emotional issues show up over the course of the day. And, you know, she says that she never really was sure that it worked until recently, when she's driving Clark to school, to kindergarten, and they're doing this thing that they do as a part of these coping strategies where they kind of visualize their day and the challenges they're going to face. And she says, I have a meeting that I'm, I'm feeling really anxious about. And then five-year-old Clark Let's a string of truth bombs out that were so good and so helpful that she had to tweet about it. She made this long tweet thread of like six words of wisdom that he crammed into this car ride. And all these adults on Twitter are really finding it useful. It's gotten 18,000 retweets and like 100,000 likes. Like,
0: (laughs) what is, what is Clark saying that's getting all this attention?
1: Listen, I mean, these, these are honestly, they're really helpful. Some people get more out of certain adages and some people get more help out of others. But ones that I especially liked are, mama, you got to say your affirmations in your mouth and in your heart. You say, I am brave of this meeting. I am loved, I smell good, and you can say five or three or ten times until you know it. Word!
0: Wow, that's some real body-keeps-the-score stuff. Yes! You know, that's like talking about the physicality of, of how our emotions work.
1: Listen to this one. Another another pearl of wisdom from this five-year-old genius. Mama, you gotta walk big. You gotta mean it like Dolly on a dinosaur because you got it.
0: <laughs> what Dolly. Is on this dinosaur. Uh,
1: In the New York Times article about this tweet stream, Clark's mother Gwyneth said that Dolly is Dolly Parton because he loves that Netflix uh, Code of Many Colors movie. And so I guess in his mind, the most confident, amazing thing in the world would be Dolly Parton on a dinosaur.
0: (laughs) I would love to see that. Let's hope that that is part of America's future at some point. I wouldn't put it past her. Speaking of young people doing incredible things, the best news I saw this week uh, was another uh, person who is doing some pretty precocious stuff. Her name is Julia Rue, and she is a 22-year-old Harvard student. And she spent the pandemic, like a lot of us did, with her family. And she spent a lot of time with her grandmother, who uh, is originally from Korea, because her grandfather passed away, unfortunately, due to COVID. And as she was talking to her grandmother, she was hearing a lot of sort of Korean folk tales and stuff that she said she didn't really know about Korean life and and life in South Korea. And her grandmother told her the story, the folktale called The Blind Man's Daughter, which involves a a character named Shim Chung, who's a Korean princess. And Julia Roo, who's always been a fan of uh, like Disney musicals, heard what she thought was the makings of a Disney musical. She had also noted growing up in the U.S., that uh, there hasn't been a Disney princess or heroine or main character who's been Korean or Korean-American. And so she decided to take it upon herself to actually write a Disney-style musical. She's written 15 original songs. She's written the screenplay. uh, And she has been recording these songs by herself. She has to play every character in the musical. And then she's been posting snippets of the songs on like TikTok, where... Thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people are now uh, liking these and passing them around and recording their own versions. I just want to play you a little bit of dive. This is the sort of anthem from this new musical that uh, and I'll mention, too, that it's her senior project at Harvard. <laughs> so this is Juliet uh, Julia Rue with her musical that she's writing.
5: Now all of the fish in the sea can't stop me All of the waves in the world can't rock me I'm on a mission and G Just watch me go Dive All that's left is the dive
0: She's had Hollywood producers now approaching her about adapting this. Wow. The thing that cracks me up is She's not done with the musical. I mean, she's done an incredible amount of work on it, but she is still finishing it because this, again, is how she's graduating from college.
1: She's still got to get a grade.
0: (laughs) The idea that she is cramming for this, like any of the rest of us would have just like a term paper or a senior thesis. Like if they give her anything less than an A plus, I feel like we need to have a talk with those professors at Harvard. So that is the best news that I heard this week. The uh, incredible story of Julia Rue. If you'd like to get even more of the best news in your life, head on over to the LiveWire podcast feed because we've launched a brand new podcast called The Best News, and it's sort of an expanded version of our radio best news segment. So go check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Let's invite our first guest over to a live wire. If you have turned on a TV in the last 20 years, and don't pretend like you haven't, <laughs> you know everyone's like too cool for TV, but you have, and you've seen this guy's stuff. He's worked on Saturday Night Live, The Office, where he also played <laughs> Dwight Schrute's weird brother, Moe Schrute. Mm-hmm. Uh, he created and co-created a bunch of shows, Parks and Recreation, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and The Good Place. And now he's out with his first book, How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question which Lord knows I could use some advice on.
4: <laughs> Michael sure, welcome to LiveWire. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
0: This uh, book is really incredible. Um, I guess I thought it was just going to be a bunch of jokes, because I associate <laughs> you with this really funny television, things like Parks and Rec and The Good Place and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And so I was just sort of ready for that. And then I, I started reading it and I was really struck by how much useful information there is in there. And Elena, you were saying this before we started recording, that for a lot of us who didn't study philosophy, it just gives you a kind of simple language to use around a lot of these topics.
1: Yeah, totally.
4: Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that. I mean, I I feel like my day job as a comedy writer set the bar low in terms of the amount of useful information that you might expect. So I'm glad I cleared the low bar. But yeah, I mean, the, the process of writing The Good Place was so fun, because it was taking these giant thorny ideas, having them explained to me by Professionals and then discussing them with a room full of very smart and funny people and then trying to translate them into a conversational humorous language that could actually work on television and you know the book is the same thing it's the same idea it's like I, I read all this stuff I understand most of it let's say I understand most of it and uh, and now I just want to talk about it in a way that you would talk to your friend if you were at a party or something like I it is not intended to be a serious. You know, deep uh, philosophical tome. It's supposed to be like ideally like a conversation starter yeah. or a, an introduction in a way that people can enjoy. Did um, the
0: idea for the good place get its uh, start over a tipping practice that you were doing at Starbucks?
4: Essentially, yes. The the that was one of the main instigators of the whole thing, which I write about. It's I I would go and get a dollar seventy three medium coffee from Starbucks at this place near my house. And, uh, and I would pay in cash and then I would tip the 27 cents, throw it into the tip jar, except I realized one day in in like a moment of like deep shame and horror that I didn't just throw the money in the tip jar. I waited until the guy turned her back around with my coffee, Mm -hmm. said he would see me do it. And then (laughs) I had, I asked myself like eight questions very quickly. Like, why am I doing this? It, it, am I so desperate for credit that I, I want this guy to see me tip 27 cents? Why am I only tipping 27 cents? That's embarrassing. <laughs> like, there. So it, it led to this kind of investigation. And I started asking my friends, like, do you do this? And a lot of my friends are like, yeah, I definitely do that. <laughs> yeah. And eventually that sort of led me to read about this concept called moral dessert, which roughly speaking is the feeling that when we do something good, we want like a little trophy for it. We want a little gold star. And that... This I started that started me thinking about these larger questions of like why we do things, why we why we want to be seen as good people, what are the different ways in which we maneuver in the world uh, to try to get like gold stars for our behavior, all that sort of stuff. That was one of the very early points at which the good place started to fall into place.
0: I felt extremely seen by the part of the book where you talk about debating to eat your uh, daughter's leftover chicken McNuggets, because I'm exactly the same kind of vegetarian. I am a vegetarian who would love to be eating meat, but Mm -hmm. I don't love the meat industry, largely speaking. Um, Have you ever considered trying to force your kids to be vegetarians? Is there a, a philosophy that would say that the good that's created by your kids not eating meat is worth the bad that would be
4: created by you ruling their behaviors? I've definitely molded over. Um, I think my daughter will get there because she's a she's a animal lover and she's she just hasn't quite put it together yet. She's eleven, um, but I wouldn't. I've decided not to try to impose that value system on them because I think, generally speaking, dogma and children are are a bad mix. <laughs> I, I, it mm-hmm. often doesn't go how you want it to go. At some point, they're going to rebel against you, no matter what it is that you're doing, and if you s- impose any kind of strict dogma on your kids, like you're basically guaranteeing that they're going to go the other way when they're 16 or 17. So I also just don't think it's quite fair. Like they're at a point where their growing body's need for like protein is probably Mm -hmm. the most important thing that relates to this issue. And I'm confident that they, if I, if we like instill the right values in them and if we talk about stuff in the right way, that they will at least mull it over when they're old enough, right? They'll at least mm-hmm. have the conversation. And I don't want to tell them what to do, basically. I In in areas of morality, I want to say, like, this is what I think is important. And then they get to make up their own minds. I think that's only fair.
0: We're talking to Michael Schur. Uh, his new book is How to Be Perfect. We have to take a quick break here on Livewire, but stay with us. When we come back, we're going to talk Hedons and dollars. And moral exhaustion, the phrase that's sweeping the nation. Back back with more in a minute. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of LiveWire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at LiveWire, Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm Probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork Mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing, that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't
1: offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag.
0: True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're Mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena passerello We're talking to Michael Shore, creator of the TV show The Good Place, and uh, now the author of the book How to Be Perfect: The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question. I learned so much from reading this book. Um, not the least of which was this concept of something called hedons and and dolars. What does what does that mean? And what was what were they trying to do with that?
4: Okay, so Jeremy Bentham, 18th century British uh, philosopher. Uh, is largely responsible for developing the philosophy known as utilitarianism. It's the easiest of all of the schools of philosophy to understand, because what he says is basically, your goal is to maximize pleasure and happiness and minimize pain and suffering. So the right thing to do in any situation is the thing that maximizes collective pleasure and happiness and minimizes collective pain and suffering. So it's not just the number of people who experience happiness and sadness, it's how intense it is, how how uh, how long it lasts, all this sort of stuff. But if you are a person who is trying to reduce morality and ethics to essentially like a spreadsheet, uh, and you need to calculate how much happiness and sadness is generated, then you need a unit of measurement, right? You need something for happiness units and sadness units. So he invented them. He called the pleasure units hedons, H-E-D-O-N-S, and the sadness units dolors, D-O-L-O-R-S. So he literally wanted you to walk around and say like, this action will create 14.8 hedons and only 3.6 dolors. And so therefore, it is a good action. It's a little bit absurd. But that w- that's what he was after. He was after trying to quantify, actually quantify morality by saying there's there are happiness units and sadness units, and we should try to be calculating them all the time.
0: But one of the things that you keep bumping up against in the book is if we try to turn behavior into math, it sort of gets weird on its own because, for instance, by certain math, none of us who live in homes and are saving money for our children's colleges should really be doing that as long as there are people who don't have homes or food and water. You know, I mean, I feel like that's a lot of this book is trying to figure out if you just make it math and there's a pretty obvious way that you should be. And yet that's. Ends up being really complicated on its own.
4: Yes, and especially with utilitarianism, because you are like you saying, when it's math, you there is always something you could be doing that is better than whatever you're doing now, right? Like anywhere in the world, there is a, a crisis unfolding in mm-hmm. Yemen or in a, a hurricane or the the storm that's hitting the East Coast. Technically speaking, the way to maximize hedons would be to leave wherever you are and go there and hand out blankets and food and water, right? So. It, that the, the One of the big problems with utilitarianism and one of the main criticisms of it is they didn't put a ceiling on what your <laughs> responsibilities were in terms of doing this math, right? Like mm-hmm. they didn't, no one ever said, like, you can stop when you get to this number of hedons. <laughs> so as a result, you know, there are people who are really hardcore utilitarians who um, – and Peter Singer, who's a professor mm-hmm. at Princeton, is sort of the leader of this movement – um, there's a movement called uh, Effective Altruism, which basically is trying to do exactly that. It's trying to say, like, how do we... When we give money or time or energy or volunteer or whatever, how can we maximize it? And there are p- Effective Altruism adherents who walk into hospitals and say, I would like to donate a kidney. Mm-hmm. And they say, to whom? And the answer is to whoever needs it. Because wow. I have two kidneys, and I don't need both of them, and there are people out there who need kidneys, so take please take one of my kidneys. When this movement started... It was very confusing for doctors. <laughs> so there are adherents of, of this particular philosophy who do go to that extreme end and who say like, I am just going to do everything. I'm going to sell all of my possessions. I'm going to live on my friend's couches. I'm going to take all of the stuff I have and give it away to people who, are, uh, who, who have less than I do, which is, I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's really incredibly noble. It's also very scary for mm-hmm. most of us to contemplate living our lives that way. Yeah.
1: How did you find a way out of these moral questions that reduce down to like, there's no option other than to sort of completely change my life?
4: Well, one of the things I read that I loved the most is a paper called Moral Saints by a professor named Susan Wolf, who's a really, really great writer. And she, in this paper, she basically eliminates the concept of like moral sainthood or moral perfection as any kind of Achievable goal and any kind of reasonable goal to want to even achieve so she it's a it's an excellently argued paper in my opinion, and she basically says that what makes life interesting is its dimension right if you if your only goal is to be a moral saint is to be perfect and do everything perfectly then you're not going to learn how to play tennis or cook or spend any time with your kids you're not going to make <laughs> jokes because you'll be too afraid of offending someone right. <laughs> or causing pain or suffering or whatever and that basically that life is no life at all it's not mm-hmm. you're just it's a there's a term for people who criticize utilitarian uh, philosophy uh which is a, a, essentially a a happiness battery like you just become a battery like uh mm. that's powering other people's happiness at the complete expense of your own mm. so she basically says there is a limit to how much morality we can take like we can't make everything about morality that's not that's not anyone's definition of a good life so You know, what I think is important is that we think about this stuff, that we factor it into our decision making, that we have it as a facet in our daily lives, that we mold this stuff over and wrestle with it. But at some point, you also just have to be a human being on Earth. So I tried in the book to gently find what the ceiling was for how much we should care about this stuff and what the floor is for how little (laughs) we, we are obligated to care about it. And the goal is to live somewhere between the ceiling and the floor. We're talking to Michael Schur about his new book, How to Be Perfect,
0: the Correct Answer to Every Moral Question. Michael also created the TV show, The Good Place. Um, One of the things that you uh, talk about in the book is the question of if it's okay to enjoy the art that has been created by people who've done terrible things. And you Mm -hmm. talk about your love of Woody Allen's work. Uh, and then, of course, you know all of the problems that Woody Allen presents as a person. What do the philosophers teach us about that? I mean, can we like the can we like the creation of somebody who we
4: find to be repugnant? Well, none of them ever talked about this issue in particular, right? Like, <laughs> like Aristotle did not bring up Woody Allen even once. Weirdly, it's a huge gap, I think, in his <laughs> yeah. scholarship. Um, I mean, there are different approaches to this problem, and essentially, none of them. I find satisfactory, right? Like there, th- there are any number of ways you can examine this issue, and ultimately where you end up, I think, is everybody's got to decide for him or herself where their sense of integrity lies, where their where their line is for what is forgivable and not forgivable behavior. So, I believe that the situation is this: I believe that the world uh, is constantly invading our our. Uh, personal lives, by giving us information about people that even 10, 20, 30 years ago, we never would have had, which means we are forced to do a moral reckoning about our choices and our, our favorite athletes and and writers and, and actors and directors and everybody way more than we ever had to before. And uh, let's say there's a person like Woody Allen for me, or it might be Eric Clapton for someone else. If you get to a point where the person who created this thing that matters to you is so like the idea of ripping that person out of your soul is just too hard. Then the only option is to say, I am not going to do that. I'm not going to excise that person from my life, but I'm also not going to pretend that that person isn't problematic. Like those, Mm -hmm. and it's, it takes some of the fun out of it, right? It's very hard for me. I'm an Eric Clapton fan. It's very hard for me to listen to Eric Clapton solo on Layla and also remember at the same time that he went on a crazy racist rant on that stage, whatever it was 30 years ago, and recently wrote a weird and pretty bad yes. anti-vax song. <laughs> like, he and Van like, Morrison are really teaming up on the <laughs> wrong <laughs> side are, of yeah. This stuff. Yeah, it's it's hard for me. And by the way, also appropriated black music his whole life. All this all the stuff that like when I was fifteen I didn't know about, and now I do. So it's not as fun to just as it is to just listen to his music and enjoy it. But I also think that that's the only real mistake you can make. The only real mistake you can make is a knee-jerk defense of the Mm. person Mm -hmm. and and, and ignoring what that person did that caused other people pain. So it's not the best solution, but I think it's kind of the best option that we have is just to keep those two ideas in your head at the same time.
1: I find that so constructive and energizing. And if I'm not mistaken, one of Aristotle's, values is just keep talking about it having a dialogue and having a conversation is why we have morals and ethics not to get it right or get it perfect but to just have understand ourselves through that discourse so if you have like a problematic artist that you still want to engage with their work having the conversation itself it's constructive rather than drawing a line in the sand and so it's still doing something right
4: yes Absolutely. Aristotle's, if you want to reduce everyone's uh, philosophical theories to a single pithy sentence. Yes, I do. (laughs) 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 Me too. Um, What you would say about Aristotle is practice makes perfect. Now, the thing that makes this really hard about this issue (laughs) is that as soon as any of us draws this line in the sand in terms of like, I support this person. But not this person, right, some one of our friends will come along <laughs> and say, "How dare you like, how can you possibly do this? How right. can you support Woody Allen, but not Eric Clapton? How can you support R. Kelly but not Bill Cosby right And the problem is is that that argument, which is just basically a let's tear everything down let's make let's point out how impossible everything is mm-hmm. then it what it leads to is potentially, nihilism. It leads mm. to like, all right, well, this is too hard, so I'm not going to try. Right. Mm. And that, that's, that, that's that floor that I think we need to have somewhere is like there's a certain amount that you just have to care about this stuff. And if you don't, then you're just rejecting the idea of being a member of a society or a human being on Earth. And I don't think that's any kind of way to live.
0: If you would have told me a year ago that the guy who played most shrewd on The Office was going to write a book that had me thinking about the world differently, I would have thought you were crazy. But um, it's a really great book. It's How to Be Perfect by Michael Schur. Uh, buy it for the reasons spelled out by Amy Poehler on the jacket. Basically buy it to just passive-aggressively troll someone in your life by That's giving right. them this book.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great... I asked her for a blurb and... That was the one of the many that she sent me. And I was like, God, that is the most beautiful Amy Poehler blurb of all time. It's basically like imagine giving it to your friend and saying, I saw this and I thought of you. And then the, your friend says, oh, did you read it? And you say, I didn't have to. That's
0: right. Uh, Michael Schur, thanks so much for coming on
4: LiveWire. And congrats on the book. It's really great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: That was Michael Schur right here on LiveWire. His book, How To Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question, is available now. It is quite the read. And I didn't even know this until I saw it in the script, Elena. Michael is donating all of the proceeds from the book to charity. Did you know that?
1: I didn't know that. Wow.
0: The book is amazing, though. Do check it out. It's How To Be Perfect. Hey, special thanks this week to Chris Becker of Port Townsend, Washington, the small maritime village of Port Townsend, Washington, where I once lived and where Chris is supporting LiveWire as part of the LiveWire member community and generously giving us a donation each month. We are so thankful for that support because it's how we're able to keep doing the show. So thank you, Chris, for making LiveWire possible. This is LiveWire. As we do each week, we ask the LiveWire listeners a question in honor of all of the talk of morality and ethics and behavior. uh, We decided to ask the listeners, what's a tiny unethical thing that you find yourself doing? What are the listeners admitting to this week, Elena?
1: Uh, This one's from Anique. Anique says, sharing my streaming passwords with my parents who are in their late 80s. They pay for my college and, oh, yeah, my life. So this is the least unethical thing that I could do.
0: <laughs> See, that is, that's, I have to admit, kind of adorable to me. And also a little bit of a reversal of, mm-hmm. the, of the way it usually goes now. I've seen right. people, you know, write on Twitter and stuff that really adulthood now is when you can no longer log in with your parents' mm-hmm. Netflix password. It's usually, you know, the older generation's kind of trying to bring the younger generation along financially. This is an inversion of that.
1: I used to use, up until like like 2013, 20, 20, I used my former student's stepfather's password. I still remember it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. What's another uh, kind of mm, slightly unethical thing that one of our listeners is willing to admit to?
1: Katie says, I hate avocado, but I just tell people I'm allergic to it so that they don't try to sneak it into things to, <sighs> quote, prove me wrong.
0: <laughs> I dated someone, Elena, for Uh-oh. probably about six years, a very serious relationship for me. And throughout the relationship, I was convinced that this person was oh, no? deathly <laughs> allergic to onions, like would go into some sort of physical... Uh-huh. Uh, you know, shock if they ate an onion. And every time we'd be out to dinner or ordering things at restaurants, no onions, I'm allergic to onions. And towards the end of the relationship, I'm not saying this is what hastened it, but towards the end of the relationship, this person shared with me that they were not allergic to onions. They just didn't like them. And when they said, I don't like onions, people would leave them in.
1: (laughs) Oh, you can't taste it. It's like, why are you putting something tasteless in the (laughs) food?
0: Well, maybe this person was onto something. I'm just saying that is more common than we probably realized. All right. Uh, one more tiny unethical thing that one of our otherwise, you know, pure as the driven snow listeners engage in.
1: Okay, this one I'm guilty of from Kyle. Kyle says, I use those return address labels that the charity send me without donating to
0: the charity.
1: <laughs> I totally do that.
0: <laughs> you know what? It's, it's awareness for whatever the organization is. So That's right. maybe you're not in a spot to donate at that moment. But you're kind of upping the awareness as that letter travels across the country. Brand recognition. At least that's what people like me <laughs> tell ourselves uh, when we're not being perfect, as the title of the Michael Sher book goes. All right. Thank you, everyone, who wrote in with your responses. Thank you for your honesty. Uh, we have another listener question uh, that we're going to pose to you for next week's show at the end of today's program. So do uh, stick around for that. Our next guest is a comedian, director, and writer who's worked on a bunch of shows, including The Good Place, Michael Schur's TV show. He wrote an episode of it. He's also worked on The Late Late Show with James Corden, The Amber Ruffin Show. If you're an internet person, you might best know him for his yearly video he was doing honoring the Earth, Wind & Fire classic September, which he was releasing each September 21st. He was also the co-host of two hit podcasts, Gilmore Guys and Punch Up the Jam, Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Demi Adigi eBay, which we recorded in front of a live audience at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon, back in December.
2: Hello. Ah. I had to do one spin in the chair, and now the cord is caught. Oh, great.
0: Demi, it is so nice to have you here. It is nice to be here. Um, I'm honestly slightly surprised that you agreed to return, because you came up to do Livewire one other time. I believe it was March 12th, 2020. That's right. (laughs) You landed in Portland, and we said, we're not doing the show.
2: And I said, can I keep the hotel? (laughs) Uh... It's very funny. As I was coming up here, uh, there was an Omicron spike, and I had just come from New York and like, got tested, and was like, okay, I'm in the clear. And then like I, I heard all my friends were getting COVID, and I was like, they're going to cancel it again. Gonna, it's going to happen again. And I was in the hotel, just like, I'm going to get a text, just like, hey, we're not doing it. And I'm
0: like, it would have been cursed. but At that point, you're the problem. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I think it was the day before that, or maybe it was even the 12th, there was a day where... Uh, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson announced they had it and they canceled the NBA season. And I think that was that was when we the world the people that aren't science you know sort of inclined towards science or studying the minutiae at the time were like well, Tom Hanks has it. We're shutting it down.
2: Yes, Tom Hanks is the Waffle House Index of the yes. world's uh, diseases. Thank
0: you for knowing about that. Yes. Is that your from your Texas upbringing?
2: No, it's just uh, a... thing you know. just a thing. It's stuck in the back of my head. I don't remember math, but I remember the Waffle House Index. Do you want to elaborate? <laughs> Basically, uh, I think it's FEMA or some... Maybe it's just a, a casual thing, but uh, you can measure how bad a disaster is if Waffle House shuts down because they open through everything... So it's like a hurricane is really bad at the Waffle House. It's like, we're closing. But sometimes it'll be like, you know, trailers are going through the sky and Waffle House. Is like, ah, we're still here.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a real thing that mm-hmm. they, they use. Uh, it's also a good promotion for Waffle House. But mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, the do. Um, I love your comedy. Uh, I, I mean, you do a bunch of different things in comedy, and I, I really enjoy all of them. But I think something that kind of encapsulates it, uh, a certain version of your comedy, is the lyrics that you wrote to the song Succession, to the theme song of yes. Succession, which is just kind of like you say well I'm gonna play it. Um, <laughs> these are words that you made up to the succession theme song. Correct. Um, and basically laying bare what the show is really about. Here take a listen to this. which folk are going to argue and
2: the new ever's best is going to
5: win that kiss from daddy all the rich white folk are going to argue, and then whoever's best is going to win the kiss from daddy. A kiss,
2: daddy. All the rich white folk are going to argue, but only one will triumph and win the prize of daddy's
0: love. So it's the basically Thank you, thank you so much. The rich white folks trying to get a kiss from daddy. I now see people, when they refer to Succession on Twitter, calling it getting a kiss from daddy. It's now like a way to just, it's a shorthand for the show.
2: Which I I love, and I've seen uh, interviews of the cast members being told about it over and over, and I'm always just like, this must they must just be so tired of like, oh, the kiss from daddy guy, all right. Yeah, all right.
0: What I love about that, and like, were you, am I, Remembering this right, were you like writing new credit music for like Wild Wild West or something? Uh, I've written a few
2: uh, (laughs) fake credit songs as performed by Will Smith for various movies. (laughs) Um,
0: And will continue to do so until he sues me. (laughs) It feels like I'm sitting next to you on the couch at your house and you're just being funny and we're watching TV and I love that. Thank you. Is that something that goes through your mind when you're creating this content? Like you want it to feel that way?
2: Well, as a performer, I think I'm very much like, nobody look at me, I don't want to be perceived. Which, uh, And then when I started doing those things, I liked it because it felt like there was a distance between me and the thing, because I always pretended like, oh, it's just this video I found of this song that no one talks about. And I would <laughs> right. sit on my couch and like film the edited version of the credits that I have, like the music that I made playing over it. Mm-hmm. And it's a very fun sort of thing to play with, of being like here's this thing that y- you know it's fake but also is fun because there are people who won't know it's fake and they're yeah. just like what? This sounds awful. Why would he do this?
0: Uh, and you present it so seriously. Like yes. you do not let us know as the audience that you wrote this wild song that you're now saying is That's the end That's kind credits. of my favorite part. Uh, I
2: did one for uh, when Infinity War came out where I was pretending that Future made a song for the credits and I went to a The th- rapper Future. Correct. This is public radio. We have to sort of Right. Explain. Sorry. Uh, yes. Uh, Birth name, I think, May Davy is Cash. Not helpful. Um, But uh, to make that one, I basically went into a movie theater. Like, I think I was, I went to Pacific Rim Uprising before it started early. I was like, all right, now just film the, the blank theater screen for like. a long enough time that I can edit something in there and I did a thing where I was like slipping my hand over the the lens to be like oh they caught me I got to hide it and just like I really am into making it feel like this is a thing that I captured and it's not I just found it I didn't make it and it's it's always fun people are just like that's not real Lin-Manuel Miranda isn't in the Avengers I'm like yeah are you listening to anything that's on screen it's just very fun to sort of lean into the the absurdity of making a thing that is both comedic and inherently
0: makes you go, why did you do all of this work? <laughs> uh, well, I know that, uh, I don't know if this is because you've had a little bit more time, but you finished a screenplay that is a heist film about, I was reading the description of this film based on real events and I, Every sentence was more bananas than the one yes. that preceded it. It's very
2: – every time I talk about this, I'm just like, I should stop talking about this till someone gives me money for it. Mm. Um, but, yeah, basically, it's uh, – there was a real thing that happened in uh, Chicago, 1876, I believe, where there were two counterfeiters that were at the very bottom rung of a uh, crime ring in Chicago, and their head counterfeiter got arrested. And the the like, counterfeiting ring was panicking, and the guy was the, the two guys were like, w- if we find a way to get this guy out of prison, will you give us more responsibility, and more respect? And He's like, yeah, whatever, I don't care who you guys are. And uh, the plan that they came up with and then pursued is, what if we steal Abraham Lincoln's dead body and <laughs> ransom it back to the city of Chicago in exchange for this prisoner's release? What? Uh, which is ridiculous, uh, and more ridiculous is everybody found out about it, and they still almost did it, (laughs) because everyone's just like, well, they're very stupid, they're not going to pull this off. And it's just a very, like, the history of it is very hijinks-based and, like, very silly and feels just like a a sort of comedy of errors. Um, But, yeah, now it just sits on my hard drive, and I'm, like, I'm I'm working on so many other things that I... One day I'll get to make something else, and people like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, let me do this thing that I finished years ago
0: once they start letting you do like vanity projects yes like we'll give it to demi we got to keep him happy and then that's my spider-man trilogy and they're
2: like what do you want to do and i'm like lincoln and they're like all right tom holland's in it though (laughs) (laughs) uh
0: yeah on that subject i know this was the year that you sort of wrapped up your uh september 21st project which was incredible congratulations thank you so much so great um for the folks that don't know what we're talking about, you started off making these videos for September 21st where you would do kind of a little... It started off what seemed elaborate, this elaborate video for that song where you would be dancing around to it and, and you know, pulling confetti cannons and stuff. Right. But then every year it had to increase in its complexity exponentially. Yeah. It until, didn't have to. I just insisted on doing that until I was like, what have I done to myself? Is it is it a little less burdensome now that you know you kind of don't have to do it again this year? It's so much less burdensome, but also
2: burdensome in that I think it'll always be a thing where like, leading up to it, people will still just be like, you're going to do it? And I'm like, no, (laughs) you saw the last one. I'm dead at the end. Uh, It it feels like it was such a fun thing to make and conceptualize and direct and like just put it out that I was sort of just like, I am really glad that this is the end, but God, I want to do more things like this and not like more like traditional video projects where every year I have a panic attack, but just like more (laughs) of a thing where it's like, oh, I get to like conceptualize a project and work on it with friends and just be like, what's a crazy thing that we can do with this budget and just sort of like go for it. And uh, it just, it really crystallized the idea that I'm like, I want to do this for the rest
0: of my life. Sure. I mean, (laughs) this last one was a masterpiece, but I mean, it was was like a major Hollywood production. Thank you. I mean, it it was really unreal. And the other thing that I want to mention is you raised so much money for a very deserving cause uh, how much did, th- did this end up raising i think it ended up being a little over one million dollars uh, awesome
1: yeah. awesome it's very
0: cool yeah demi Adigi ebay right here on livewire that was demi Adidji ebay recorded live at revolution hall here in Portland, Oregon, last December. If you want to find out the latest stuff that Demi is up to on social media, just uh, put the handle ElectroLemon in and you will find Demi. I think he's the only one using that. I'm Luke Burbank. Right over there is Elena Passarello. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back with music from Shovels and Rope. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one of a kind handcrafted tea blends like Cinnamon Churro Chai and Blueberry Cream Earl Grey. Use the code LiveWire, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Live Wire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. NPR calls this week's musical guest one of Roots Music's most exciting, unpredictable acts. The New Yorker has called them a modern-day Cash and Carter. Boy, that's high praise. Whoa. Yeah, right? Didn't get better than that. They are celebrating 10 years together as a band with the release of their sixth full-length album, Manticore being described as her most personal yet, which is really saying something because they are also married <laughs> kids, Michael Trent and Carrie Ann Hurst, a.k.a. Shovels and Rope. Welcome back to Livewire.
3: Woohoo! Yes, Yeah, it's good to be here with y'all.
0: And you're joining us from where today?
6: Um, we are in, we're at home. We're in our studio in our backyard. That's right.
0: In uh, John's <laughs> Island, where South Carolina. Where the magic
3: Carolina. happens. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Have you been spending a lot of time in there during, uh, you know, the pandemic and its various phases?
3: i made a couple records in here.
6: We have, we have, um, we, we have two kids. So we're spending a lot of time uh, not in here, um, but doing whatever it is that they want or need. (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever hide in the studio from them? (laughs) Yeah, there's a box of tissues in here and uh,
0: we just come in here and. (laughs) Sob, sob,
6: sob
3: a little bit. <laughs> sob and chips.
0: Um, this album is called Manticore. Um, I was not familiar with that word. What is a, a manticore and <laughs> why did you choose that?
3: Well, the manticore is a legendary beast. Um, I think it has a, a Persian origin and it's alleged to be half scorpion and half lion. Uh, Michael and I always kind of thought of ourselves as a two-headed monster and we just finally <laughs> named it Uh He's a Scorpio, and I'm a Leo, and it just seemed like it was a good, and it was an allegory in and of itself for the big man-eating machine we've
0: become. Right. <laughs> a fierce and mighty, bloodthirsty beast. Um, I've seen you play live, and I would not describe you as a, as a bloodthirsty beast. I would describe your music as mighty, though, and, and um, we're going to hear some come up in a minute. I'm curious, though, uh, on this uh, new album, you write a lot about your relationship. And is there ever a time where one of you writes a lyric about the relationship and the other person says, maybe let's not share that with the wider world? Like, what's that process like for you?
6: It happens. Um, we do write a lot of character, character-based character songs um, that could be interpreted by people as, oh, man, you know, uh, that's them <laughs> and they're not doing well. But um, with this record, I guess there's a song called Divide and Conquer that is um, – you know, it's
3: I needed reassuring. I needed <laughs> reassuring.
6: <laughs> really? No. Uh, it, a
3: conversation was had.
6: <laughs> but we have been doing it for so long that it's like, you know, we can we're we're married. We've been through um a lot together. We have two small kids. And so we can separate like the the craft from the real life and they do intertwine, but um I think it's actually
0: Healthy.
3: I was gonna say we have we don't say anything in song that we didn't already say in therapy. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, what song are we gonna hear?
3: We are gonna have uh, our piano guitar version of Domino. A little. Okay. Tip to the legacy of James Dean.
0: All right. So this is Shovels and Rope right here on Livewire. Take it away. Ready. of rock and roll music, Michael Trent and Carrie Ann Hurst. Thank you so much for coming on LiveWire.
3: Thank y'all for having us. Always a pleasure to be with y'all.
0: That was Shovels and Rope right here on LiveWire. Their album, Manticore, is available February 18th. All right, before we skedaddle a little preview of what we're doing next week, we're going to be talking to comedian... W. Kamau Bell, and filmmaker Katie King about their documentary miniseries We Need to Talk About Cosby. Then we're going to hear some fashion advice from our friend Paul F. Tompkins uh, and also some new music from five-time Grammy winner Keb Moe. We're going to talk to him about his nearly 50-year musical career. (laughs) Make sure you join us next week. It's going to be fun. As always, we're looking to get your answer to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's show?
1: I can't wait to see the answers to this one. The question is, what is your biggest fashion regret? My regret is that you only get one.
0: (laughs) North Seattle Christian, junior prom, houndstooth. Anyway, (laughs) if you would like to submit your response to that listener question, Hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. We are at LiveWire Radio. All right, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Michael Schur, Demi digi eBay, and Shovels and Rope. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director.
1: Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester, and Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Ayal Alves, Zach Domer, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer, and our house sound is by D. Neil Blake.
0: Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. LiveWire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Chris Becker of Port Townsend, Washington, my old stomps. For more information about the show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire team. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.